On May 8, 1945, the Third Reich surrendered to the Allied forces in Europe. This day has become known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It was a day of joyous celebration. It was a day when, after being dragged through five years plus of ugly, brutal combat, the World War, the Second World War, started its inevitable march to its conclusion. VE Day was the day of celebration. It was especially a day of celebration in those areas of Europe that had been occupied by the Third Reich. And so they had lived, like for example, in Paris and in France, they lived under Nazi oppression for four years, waiting for that, that day of liberation and then ultimately the day of victory. Just to capture the idea of the, or the, the essence of the celebration, we've got some photos. Check out this photo from Paris. This is again on VE Day, May 8th, 1945. These are people who had lived under the, the oppressive rule of the Nazis for four years. And here they are, there in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe, just enjoying that celebration waving those flags and patriotism, excited, happy. And of course, there are many other photographs of people celebrating in the streets, uh, iconic photographs throughout the ages that they've come to be, uh, just celebrating what? Celebrating the defeat of evil. They're celebrating the defeat of evil. In many ways, Revelation 19 verses 1 to 10 matches this exact tone. That This is a passage, passage where we see where we see and hear heaven rejoice over the defeat of evil. In chapter 18, we were given a vision of God judging Babylon. And remember, Babylon is representative of all of human civilization in rebellion against God. And so God judges and rightly judges Babylon. And that is a harsh scene. Remember that those who love Babylon mourn Babylon's judgment, right? They're sad. Oh no, they, they can't make money anymore. They can't enjoy uh, the, the spoils of, of, of Babylon's culture. But here, there's a transition from that mourning of the world, right, at, at its judgment. There's a transition here to the heavenly view. And from heaven's perspective, the defeat of evil is a day to celebrate. It's a day to rejoice. Now, I have to tell you that in recent years, some commentators, some who even claim to be Christian, have criticized this passage in the, in the book of Revelation. They've said, it doesn't seem very Christian to celebrate at someone else's suffering. And I think that viewpoint is, first of all, a, an, a misplaced compassion, and it's a distorted view. It has a distorted view of justice. It also is built on not really understanding, I think, the timing of what's going on here in Revelation. So we're going to talk about that. But it brings up, in general, a fair point. Should we be celebrating the defeat of evil? I wonder if you had said to those people celebrating in Paris on May 8th, why are you so excited? You, sh- you shouldn't be this happy. The Third Reich has, has crumbled. People were harmed in that. Yes, that's a, that's a hard reality. It's sad on the one hand. But greater than the sadness over the wicked suffering and that evil empire collapsing is the joy that what's wrong has been made right, that justice has finally been done. No one was saying that, by the way, in Paris on May 8th. They were too busy celebrating. And so last week we saw the world mourn as Babylon is judged and God rains his judgment down on on evil. And here in Revelation 19, we pick up the scene, but now we see it in heaven and we hear heaven rejoicing. 
as we get into this passage, we have to remember that really this last part of Revelation, it's kind of the story of two women. We've got Babylon, a woman who represents sinful culture, and then we're going to meet another lady, a beautiful lady, the bride of Christ today. As we think about these two ladies, we'll see that they have radically different fates. They're headed in opposite directions. And we're going to have to ask the question, well, to whom do I belong? Where does my allegiance lie, with Babylon or with the bride? Let's unpack these verses and see how this impacts our lives. First of all, in chapter 19, verse 1, right on the heels of Babylon's judgment and the world mourning, here John sees another aspect of the vision. He says in verse 1, After this, I heard something like the sound of a vast multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. If we pause just there in verse 1, John, most of the time in Revelation, he sees, but often he also hears, right? Here the emphasis is on what, what does he hear? Well, he hears a vast multitude in heaven. Who is this vast multitude? Well, it, it's not brain surgery, really. These are the saints who have died in ages past and the angels. There's your population in heaven, right? So in the the throne room of God, that's it. You've got the saints and the angels. And maybe there's an emphasis on the saints here, but the angels are going to be included, so don't sweat it about the details. The fact is, this vast, vast multitude, the sound of a roaring crowd, right, that John hears. And while the world is mourning, the merchants and kings and sailors are mourning at the judgment of Babylon, what's going on in heaven? Well, here John gets this glimpse And as he hears what's going on in heaven, what does he hear? He hears the crowd roar, hallelujah. Hallelujah, that frequent phrase of worship we find in the book of Psalms. Praise to Yahweh. It is is an exclamation of worship. And so as Babylon is judged, heaven is praising God. Hallelujah, why? Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. You have to put the pieces together. Chapter 19 comes after chapter 18 for a reason. The judgment of evil, the judgment of sinners, the destruction of that wicked empire, right? That evidences, it's proof of the salvation that God is bringing to his church. It's evidence of the glory of God, his greatness being on display as his righteous judgment is shown to be uh, the rule for the universe and his justice comes And it's evidence of the power that God has, that he can defeat this mighty empire and assert what is right and good forever. So as as Babylon is judged, heaven sings a song of praise. Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to God. People could have argued it before. We haven't seen it. Where is God? You know, the Babylon is prospering, all of that. But after it's judged, after, after Babylon is judged, there will be no doubt as to where salvation, glory, and power come from. Verse 2, the song continues. Because, okay, again, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. So this is, you know, more reason to praise here. And he, the, the song just makes it clear. They're singing praise God because his judgments are true and righteous. What is wrong has been made right. We're, again, in so many ways, we're longing for that day where the justice of God is a visible, tangible reality on earth. God is still just and true. 
But in his perfect timing, there will be a day when that judgment and that justice is made, re- made a reality on earth. And so here they're saying, praise God because his judgments are true and righteous. And he has rendered the verdict. Sometimes when we get concerned about, oh, it's, it's sad that the wicked are judged. Yes, it is, it is sad that the wicked will be judged on one hand. But on the other hand, God is the perfect judge and his decisions are always right. There's never a need for appeal. There's never a need to to question, is God going to do what is actually right and good? His judgments are true and righteous. So heaven sings praise. Hallelujah. He's judged Babylon. He's done what is right. And just in case we forgot who we're dealing with, remember the, the nature of Babylon, the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. Those are all metaphors for idolatry, how she spreads her worship of false gods throughout the world in various cultures through various times. But Babylon, remember we talked about it a few weeks ago. She may look good, but she is not good. She's wicked at, to the core. She corrupted the earth with that idolatry. And lest we forget where this wickedness, what it actually results in, in many cases, it results in the execution and persecution of the church. Because notice the end of verse 2. He has avenged. In the judgment of Babylon, God has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. Remember back in Revelation 6, the souls of the martyred saints are crying out, Lord, how long? How long until wrongs are made right? How long until you're going to avenge our death? How long until this bill is paid? And the answer comes in chapter 19, it has been paid. On one day yet to come, heaven will rejoice. The bill has been paid. The blood of the martyrs has been avenged. Verse 3, there's more singing. A second time they said, the vast multitude, hallelujah, praise God. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Now, the reference to her smoke here, we've actually encountered this already in chapter 18 a little bit. And there's been a sneak preview of it uh, previously as well in Revelation. But this is the smoke of the sacrifice, meaning the judgment of the wicked. And the picture is the wicked are judged as an altar, on the altar, as a sacrifice burnt to God's glory. And the smoke of that sacrifice will ascend to the Lord for eternity, forever. And so here, that's exactly what they praise God for. Hallelujah, praise God. Her smoke, the smoke of Babylon being burned and judged, ascends forever and ever. Not a popular message today. The idea that the wicked will be judged forever. But it's a biblical message. And because God's judgments are true and righteous, we can trust him that his judgment will be right. So we don't have to get upset about, well, will it be fair? Or is it going to be too much? Or whatever. We can say, no, we trust the Lord. He is perfect and pure. And his judgment is perfect. And so they praise God, not only for the fact that he judges Babylon, but for the duration of his judgment of Babylon. That that judgment will last forever and ever. Of course, all of heaven is involved in this song of praise. Watch verse 4. We get the 24 elders and the four living creatures jumping in. Verse 4. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Have you gotten a little bit of a point of the repetition here? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Maybe the vast multitude are the saints, and here the angels join in. Remember, we talked about in weeks past, the 24 elders, those could represent possibly Old and New Testament saints. I think it's probably more likely they're a particular class of angel. So you have perhaps some angels or perhaps leaders of the saints. Either way, 
You have the four living creatures, which definitely represent angels. So you have the, these different classes of angels, including the saints. The point is, all of heaven here is involved in the song of praise. And they don't disagree with the hallelujah. They agree with the hallelujah. Amen means I agree. Yes, it is right. It is good. Amen. Hallelujah. The angels chime in. Yes, the saints are right. It is good that Babylon was judged. God's judgment is righteous. It is good that the wrongs have been now set right. And it is good that the smoke of her sacrifice ascends forever. So they praise. And just in case we miss it, from verse 5, now we have a voice coming from the throne. Verse 5, a voice came from the throne. Whose voice is it? It's most likely the voice of Jesus. Some people think, well, maybe it's another angelic voice from near the throne Let's think that's less likely, but either way, this voice comes with divine authorization, okay? What does the divine voice say? What has the divine voice been authorized to say to you and to me? A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both great and small. The call goes out. If you can hear this announcement, this is the day. It's VB Day, Victory Over Babylon Day. This is the day. So we praise God. The saints have said it. The angels have said it. And now the voice of Jesus from the throne of God himself says, Praise him. And I love it. Praise, praise our God, all his servants, whoever you are, and the ones who fear him, all those who fear the Lord, wherever you are, both small and great, short and tall. This is probably not about height. It's about socioeconomic status, poor or rich, successful or not. It doesn't matter what size your family is. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what degree you have. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you... Listen, whoever you are, this is the day for celebration and to praise God in worship because Babylon has been judged. Brothers and sisters, this day has not come yet. We look forward to it because it's coming That day we will, we will worship God for his justice. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will participate in this day of celebration. You will either have gone home to glory and you'll be there in that vast multitude crying out hallelujah, or you'll be on the earth praising God for his work. Either way, we will worship God for his justice. Now listen. This worship celebration, it is not reveling in the suffering of the wicked, okay? What it is, though, it's rejoicing in God's righteous character. We're praising God that what's right has been done. This text urges us, in the meantime, well, first of all, to recognize the wickedness of the sin and idolatry of Babylon, so we had that description in verse 2, just, just so we don't forget. Babylon, she looks good, but she's not good. She's ugly to the core. That, that idolatry that's corrupted the earth, it's not a good thing. And it's been sanitized in our culture. Man, so much. Satan has, has done an, an incredibly good job deceiving our culture as to the heinousness or the wickedness of sin. So it looks good in our culture. People desire it. They champion it. They celebrate it with holidays. They, they say, this is a good thing. We should all, you know, you need training in your company to champion these causes, right? In education, we want to teach children to love these things and to value them as good. But they're not good. It's ugly. It's wrong, that idolatry. All idolatry is wrong. And so here there's a a call to the church to recognize the wickedness of sin today, to see it for what it is. 
There's also a call here, though, to recognize the righteousness of God's judgment. To trust the Lord with his divine prerogative to render the verdict. Sometimes I think maybe we, we feel a little too much of an obligation to defend God in our culture. God does not need to be defended. I mean, he needs to be argued for. Certainly, we share the gospel. We testify. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but we don't have to defend him. He's God. His judgments are true and righteous. And on VB Day, that will become, that will become clear to the entire universe. Secondly, this text urges us to long for God's justice in light of the heinousness of sin, but maybe especially in light of the suffering of the church. Uh, today, not so much here in our culture, but in other cultures, the church is suffering, physically suffering. The church is prevented from gathering. Christians are imprisoned. Christians are beaten. Christians have been killed this week on planet Earth because they are followers of Jesus. Now, in our culture, we're not facing that level of persecution yet, but we still face pushback from the culture. There was a big, uh, you know, uh, there was a big political event in Wisconsin, and there was some guy there reading the Bible, and there was, you know, this event. They ripped the Bible out of his hands and all of that, and I don't know who's involved and whatever's going on, but they're ripping Bibles out of people's hands. So, you know, there's, there's a reality that, hey, listen, in our culture, there's pushback against the gospel. There's pushback against God's word and what it reveals. Disdain for who God is. And so the saints will suffer. If things continue as they are, we probably will suffer more in days to come. I don't know if we'll suffer as much as other saints are suffering in the world right now, but we may suffer more. The suffering of the church is not right. The suffering of the bride of Christ is not, it's not right. And the killing of Christians is not right. And so this will be a day that we should long for because it's a day where those sufferings, the sufferings of the church, are finally dealt with in God's eternal court, and it will be done. Salvation, glory, and power do belong to him. So when we think about this coming day of judgment, right, we might be tempted to be embarrassed because of the way our culture views this standard, but don't be embarrassed. We might be tempted to apologize for God and his righteousness. Don't apologize. We might be tempted to ignore evil And to not call it what it is, but let's not ignore evil. We need to see it for what it is, the ugliness of Babylon. Now, a word of caution. It's not time for this celebration just yet. And it was really helped here by Tom Schreiner, who encourages us that because we're not to this VB day yet, we do have a little bit of a different posture towards the wicked, right? So work with me on this. But we know from God's word that Christians are called to repent of our sins, So that's something that doesn't change from now till this day of judgment and the return of Christ. We repent. We're called to worship every day. Absolutely. We're called to love our enemies. After the day of judgment, our enemies will be no more. They'll be suffering eternal judgment. That's it. It'll be done. But in the meantime, because we're not there yet, we have an opportunity to love our enemies. And Jesus calls us to love the wicked, to love our enemies, even as they attack us. The church is called to share the gospel After this day, there will be no more need to share the gospel. The time will be up. 
But, but between now and that day, we have the opportunity to deliver good news. And watch it. Some of God's enemies will become his friends. And so we celebrate. And we offer people this gospel. And we, we urge them to look forward to the goodness of, of God's provision, not just in Jesus in the past, but in what he'll do upon his return. And we, as believers, short of this day of judgment, we look for the return of Christ with hope. So it's not here yet, but VB Day will be a good day. So we look forward to that. So I think we just have to heed the caution here that though this is a day of celebration and worship, in the meantime, our posture towards the wicked is that of love and of intentional mission. We love the world, and we want to see them come to faith, saving faith uh, in Jesus, that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's our posture towards them in the meantime. And we trust God with the rest, right? Now, it's interesting. We will worship God because of his justice. When the Third Reich was defeated, especially in Paris and in France, it kind of created a problem. It was a problem that was already there. It just kind of exposed it for what it was. France was filled with collaborators. The collaborator in World War II in occupied France, were, they were French citizens who basically sided with the Third Reich. And they, they said, you know what, we are willingly going to try and see the Third Reich to be successful and undermine the attempts of the French uh, people and government and the allies to, to fight against the Third Reich. So they collaborated with the enemy. They looked French, and they, they were French by their nationality, but their allegiance was to the Third Reich. And so they were wolves in sheep's clothing, if you could say it that way, right? They were working against the French nation because they were cooperating with the enemy. On VE Day, and actually when, you know, once the Nazis were driven out of, of France, uh, as that happened late in 1944 and on into 1945, what happened was collaborators were exposed. They were shown to be what they are, enemies of the people. The fact that VB Day is coming is a warning to the church to be weary or to be wary of being a collaborator. This is the story of two women. And Babylon's fate is clear. She will be judged. The problem is, tucked inside the church of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, in Asia Minor in the first century, and even tucked inside the church today, are people who say they are followers of Jesus and are part of the bride, but in reality their allegiance is to Babylon. They are collaborating with the enemy. Their ultimate allegiance is to the dragon and the beast. And what, what shows that is the way that they live. And so the rest of this section in chapter 19, beginning in verse 6, we have this looking forward to the, the marriage of the bride, uh, to, to the lamb. But as we look forward to that, there's also this caution. Wait, which, which, where are you? Where do you fall? Are you, is your allegiance to Babylon or is your allegiance to the bride? So watch verse 6 in chapter 19 and we'll see how this is exposed John writes, then I heard, here's something else, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. This is all emphatic, right? He's heard this, this, this roar, this rumbling, it's, it's emphatic, and that same kind of language is used at the beginning of Revelation, upon the revelation of Jesus. It's also used in Ezekiel, upon the appearance of uh, the throne room of God. So this is big stuff here, right? So he hears this rumbling like loud thunder, saying what? Hallelujah! Hallelujah, fourth time this morning. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Some of us 
You can hear Handel's chorus right, ringing in our ears. The Lord, our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. He reigns. And his judgment has proven that. But it's not just about judgment, the end. See, now we start to turn. Watch verse 7. The reign of God and, and the establishment of his righteousness on earth, it's not just about judging Babylon, but watch. Let us be glad, the voice cries. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. This is the day. So it's so exciting because John hears the voice roaring and and this loud multitude crying out. And they say, praise God, because God reigns. Yes, he reigns. And his reign is evidenced in the judgment of the wicked. What's left to be done once the wicked are judged? Well, it's just the, the uniting of the church to Jesus. That's it. So note the terminology that's used in verse 7. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. We're praising God again. It's worship. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. I just want you to notice here that Jesus is still identified as the Lamb in the vision. Because for eternity, what we will glorify God for is the fact that Jesus died in our place. That he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so here, yes, it's the marriage of the church to Jesus, but in the vision, the terminology is, well, it's the marriage of the Lamb. It's the Lamb who purchased for himself a bride with his own blood. It's the marriage of the Lamb. Well, that day comes, and the bride has prepared herself. It's so great. If you've ever been a bride, I haven't been a bride. If you've been a bride, uh, you know uh, you look forward to the wedding day. And there's so much preparation that goes into the wedding day. Even, listen, picking out the dress and uh, the, all the decorations and the venue. And, and listen, this is Jersey, okay? I mean, I grew up on the West Coast. Weddings were like a casual, fun, but casual thing. Not so in the great state of New Jersey. And weddings, it's like in New Jersey, weddings, you go big or you go bigger. Like, that's it. Those are your options, right? So here, there's this idea, and what a blessing to be in New Jersey, because we can understand this text a little bit more clearly. This is harder to preach in California. Uh, The bride has prepared herself. There's been so much focus and activity on the wedding, and so looking forward to the day and behaving a certain way in preparation for that day. What would you think about a bride the week of her wedding who was dating another guy just to see? Scandalous. Immoral. What a tragedy. That's what collaborators do. What would you think of the bride of Jesus looking forward to this day of glorious unity and the bride, instead of preparing herself for that day, the bride is flirting with other guys, seeking satisfaction in other gods, You know, when we allow greed to motivate us, when we allow a desire for sexual fulfillment to allow us to to violate God's law, when we allow our career to define our existence and be our identity, when we hold grudges against others, when, when we speak in ways that tear down instead of build up, when we sin, that's the bride not preparing herself for the day. That's the bride collaborating. And the concern is, 
well, yeah, maybe you're a believer who's just struggling a little bit, which that's a thing, right? That happens. But the concern is maybe you're not a believer. Maybe your actual allegiance is to, the, is to Babylon and the beast and the dragon. Maybe your allegiance is actually to Satan and you're just pretending to be a, a part of the bride. This is going to be a great day. But Christians, read carefully, the bride prepares herself. That doesn't mean the bride provides forgiveness for her own sin. She's marrying the lamb. The lamb provides the forgiveness. The bride prepares herself how? By living distinctly for God's glory. Watch how it's explained in verse 8. She, the bride, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. And just in case we miss it, John explains what it means. For the, the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So here the bride prepares herself by wearing the beautiful gown, this fine linen that's pure. Why is she wearing that? Well, that represents in the vision the righteous living, the righteous deeds of the saints. So while we're in Babylon, we look forward to this wedding day. What does that mean to prepare ourselves for that day? It means while we're here in Babylon, we maintain our allegiance to, the, to, our, to our Savior. We're a part of the bride. We don't, we don't have allegiance to the beast. We say no to Babylon. And what that looks like is righteous living. Living for God's purposes. Saying no to temptation, even though it's all around us. And even though inside of us, we long sometimes to say yes to temptation. We say no. Why? Because we're getting ready for the wedding day. So we stay pure. We're not dating those other guys. No. We're spoken for. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then it's interesting, watch verse 9. Then he said to me, this is the angel mediating the vision to John. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Okay, so this is kind of weird, but work with me here. First he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast. There he's talking about the church. So it's a little confusing, but in the vision, the church is both the bride and the guests. Okay, why focus on the guests? Again, New Jersey, very helpful here. What do guests do at a wedding, especially at the after party? What do the, what do the guests do? Someone help me. Celebrate. Some of you haven't been to enough weddings, okay? The point of the, we have the wedding moment, the celebrate. The bride walks down the aisle. The pastor does his thing, husband and wife, and then we celebrate. There's a party. In first century Jewish culture, often it was multiple days the celebration went. You have a feast that could last multiple days as long as a week, right? You celebrate the wedding. And so here, the church, listen, on VB Day, as God demonstrates his glory in judging Babylon, it's also the day of the unity of the bride to her husband Jesus, the Lamb. And when that day happens, you won't be sad. You'll be celebrating. We will be celebrating the unification of Jesus' bride to himself. So John says, the angel says, write down, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast. If you're a part of the church, you're there. Yes, in the vision, we're both the bride and the guests. It's okay. The point is, we will celebrate at that day. We will be rejoicing in that day. And listen, the reason why he has to say, the angel says, he also said to me, these things, these words of God are true. Why does he have to write that down? Why does John need to write that down? Because on that day, it's not gonna, it'll be obvious those words are true. We'll be living it. But on this day, today, as we struggle with Babylon, we might wonder, man, is that day ever going to come? 
it sure seems far away. It sure seems like that justice and, and that unity of the church to Jesus, that looks far away. It's hard right now. And maybe it's not a cultural situation. Maybe it's in your own heart where you're going, ah, I failed again this week. Man, that day, that day of, of unity with Jesus, it just seems so far away. And so the angel says, John, write this down. You can bank on it. You can bank that this day is coming. These words of God are true. It's trustworthy. We will worship God for his justice on that day, and we will worship God as his bride. You might remember that the wedding imagery, it's not, it's not peculiar to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophets described God's relationship to his people as the marriage relationship. In Ezekiel 16, in Hosea chapter 2, this metaphor is developed where, again, God has, has purchased this people to be his own, and our relationship to him is compared to the wedding or to the marriage relationship. And so here that comes to its fulfillment as we finally see the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, finally united to him, and finally experiencing what we all long for, eternal joy and satisfaction with our beloved. Jesus is the eternal lamb who died to make this possible. We will worship God as his bride. Well, what does that have to do with me today? Again, we're looking to the future. We're not here yet. We don't know exactly when VB day will be. We don't know exactly when the wedding day will be. But as we look forward, we learn something very crucial about the bride in this vision. The bride... The bride of Christ stands apart from Babylon. The question is one of allegiance. The problem is collaboration. And the issue in the church is, well, which are you going to live for? Are you going to be faithful to your betrothed, or are you going to be dating these other guys? The bride of Christ stands apart. How? The bride of, the bride of Christ stands apart from Babylon through worship. The bride stands apart through worship. We've noted all the occurrences of hallelujah, praise our God in this passage, right? Over and over again, praise God, praise God, praise God for his judgment, praise God that he reigns, praise God for the wedding feast of the lamb. But as we think about that, the the urging of the vision is don't just hear the worship, join in with the worship. And not just in the future, but join in today. Because yes, we live in Babylon, but the bride of Christ stands apart through her righteous acts. You say, well, I thought we were singing. Yeah, worship is about so much more than singing, isn't it? Singing is just the expression of the heart of worship, verbally. But worship means valuing God above all else. And here, as we value God above all else, our acts will be righteous. Meaning we say no to temptation, not because we're inherently strong enough to do it, but because we're following the Spirit of God who leads us, we say no to temptation, even when we really want to disobey God, and even though we really want to seek fulfillment in that false God, we say no to temptation because we value God more. It's all about worship. That's what makes the bride of Christ distinct, and that's what protects his bride from being a collaborator. So, How do we do this? Well, we focus on God's kingdom. Again, you notice that in verse 6. Hallelujah, the song goes, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Yes, God is reigning now, and that reign will become a visual reality in the future. So we focus on God's kingdom even today, when we can't see it all. We refuse to compromise today, even though Babylon tries to allure us and, and trick us into compromise. We're tempted. 
And so we live righteous lives. By the way, don't miss it. When you live a distinctly Christian life, in your speech, in your behavior, right? In your attitude, it's beautiful. In the image, in the vision, the righteous acts of the saints are compared to the beautiful dress of the bride. It's beautiful in the sight of God. It may not be beautiful in the sight of our culture, but it's beautiful in the sight of God. It is good when the saints live righteous lives. Not to try to earn God's favor, but because we already have his favor. Because the lamb has already died to make us pure. By the way, that's the, the significance of the marriage imagery in Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul starts talking about husbands and wives, and then he starts talking about the church, and he gets distracted, just starts talking about the church, because the church is more glorious than human marriage. Human marriage is great, but it's a picture of the greater reality of the, of the marriage of the church to Jesus. But in that analogy, in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about how Jesus died to make his bride pure. He died so we could wear this dress. That's the picture. And you're going to cheat on him? And and you're going to try to find another husband the week of the wedding? That's how heinous our sin is. So there's a warning here. The bride stands apart from Babylon through worship. There's also, I think, a motivator here to stay pure, right? To stick with with our, our beloved. Why? Because, man, that is going to be a great day. That is going to be a day of joy and celebration that we have a hard time fathoming how good it's going to be. You know what, brothers and sisters? We don't look forward to this day enough, right? We're not excited enough about this day when all of the church throughout all of time will finally be gathered together for the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is the best. You can't beat it as regards joy and celebration and fulfillment. And we will get there, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it for us. So we're headed, this, we're headed there. Don't waste your time now trying to find a better party. There is no better party. There is no greater joy or satisfaction. So the warning here to the bride is, is don't get distracted. Don't be lured and tempted by Babylon. Man, it is going to be good. I think of uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 17, where Paul talks about all the suffering and the breaking down of our bodies. It's hard. Just living in a broken world, it's hard. Whether it's suffering physically for persecution or suffering, suffering physically because of cancer or another sickness or disease or whatever, it's hard. Some of us are living through that right now, and it is hard to go to those appointments and to get that treatment and to endure that. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he says, But that suffering cannot compare to the incomparable, eternal weight of glory that is coming for us. What is coming is so much better. And that's a motivator for us to be faithful to our beloved today. Finally, in verse 10, we see that the bride stands apart in holding to the gospel, and clinging to that gospel. Verse 10, the end of this part of the vision John writes, then I fell at his feet to worship him. By the way, this is kind of common in in, uh, visions with angels where the prophet or the apostle is getting the vision. The the angel is so kind of glorious and heavenly, you know, this heavenly glory is radiating out of this angel that 
the prophet or the apostle here, John, he's like, oh, I'm overcome by the goodness of all this. And he falls on his feet to worship the angel, which is understandable on the one hand. On the other hand, no, it's a no-no. No, we don't worship angels. Watch verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I want to explain this real quick, okay? First of all, the angel says, get up. In Greek, it's get up, bro. That's literally how it is, right? I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters. That we're, we all serve, we're all worshiping the same God here, man. And I'm not him, so get up. Don't worship me, right? But notice who the brothers and sisters are. Don't miss it. It's just so good here. Consistent with what we just saw in the vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. He says, I am a fellow servant with your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. The testimony about Jesus, the truth testified that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That testimony, he says, the brothers and sisters, the servants of God, they hold to that testimony even now when it's hard. That's the point. They have proven that they are a part of the bride because they're holding to the testimony. And the world is trying to pull them away. And Satan is trying to tempt them away. And Babylon looks good and she's batting her eyes and she's saying, come with me, right? But, but brothers and sisters, in those circumstances, we cling to the testimony. We hold to it. No, Jesus is better. He did die for my sins and he did rise from the dead. So I cling to him. The angel says, that, that's, that's who we are. We're servants of God. That we cling, you, you brothers and sisters, like you cling to that testimony of Jesus. So therefore, worship God. Don't worship me, the angel says. Don't worship your pastor. Don't worship your church. Don't worship a movement. Worship God. Value God above all else. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now listen. I, I disagree here with the CSB translators on verse 10. That S in spirit should be capital S. In 1 Peter and 2 Peter, it's made abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit produces the Word of God, right? So the Spirit is the source of the prophecy, is the source of the Word of God. And what is that Word of God? Well, it's that Jesus is the Lamb. That He died for our sins and He rose from the dead. And so we worship God because that testimony, the content of teaching about Jesus, it's not man-made. It is a result of the Spirit of God, and it is evidence of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the universe to rescue sinners. It's not human opinion. It's not the product of a civilization. It's not the result of engineering or some kind of sociological development and evolution. It is the very Word of God. And so, because it is the very, very word of God, we worship God how? By clinging to that testimony. We bank our lives on it. And you know what? Even if God calls us to give our lives for it, the bride of Christ says, yes. I'll give my life for my beloved. We live in an age of compromise, don't we? Here we see the bride testifies to the truth of the gospel. But in our culture, many who would claim to be Christians are doing the exact opposite. They are ruining the testimony of the gospel by their lives that are filled with idolatry. And rather than repent and return to living those righteous deeds, 
that make us beautiful, right? Instead of doing that, we're flirting with Babylon. The real bride testifies to the truth of the gospel. How? Through a worship-filled life. Not just a life where you sing worship songs, but a life that's driven by valuing God above all else. Worship is the central issue in this vision. I just wonder, is it the central issue in your life? You know, no matter who you are, what age you are, you face particular challenges. You know, when you're young, right, you, you want to be with your friends, you want to have fun with them. But even as you're struggling with that, a lot of the ways that young people will seek to have fun today, they're, they're Babylon. They're wicked. And so you're young, you have to say no to that. Because even though I'm young, I know I belong to Jesus. And I value him more. Young people, you can save yourself a lot of heartache by, by choosing to cling to the testimony about Jesus when you're young. Just cling to that. And sometimes it's hard because it looks like everybody's having so much fun. It looks like it would be so great, but you know it's wrong. So you cling to the testimony about Jesus. Maybe it's in your educational track. You get to college and you're pursuing studies for your career and everybody's telling you there's no way God could have created the universe. There's no way God exists. There's a lot of pressure in the secular academic environment to reject the truths that are in God's word. But listen, brothers and sisters, as you're going through that college education, you cling to the testimony of Jesus. Because people, yes, have studied the universe, but they didn't make it. So we stick with the one who made it, right? And what's shocking, actually, just as a side note, good science actually shows evidence that there is a creator. So it's not, there's nothing wrong with science. It's just we have broken hearts. Scientists often follow their hearts in, the, in pursuing Babylon rather than pursuing the glory of our creator. So as you're studying, and it does, it's not just science, right? In every field, as you're studying for your career, you cling to the testimony of Jesus. And yeah, you get out of college, and let's say you're married, and you're living your life, and you're doing your thing with your family, and it's easy to get tempted to seek fulfillment in the cars, and the houses, and the vacations, and all the rest, but you cling to the testimony of Jesus, and you say no to that temptation. And maybe your marriage gets hard, and maybe there's difficulty in your workplace, and maybe there's hard things in the culture, and the market goes down, or whatever, and you're tempted to do something that you know is dishonoring to God, to seek fulfillment, to find pleasure, whatever, to find joy, but you say no. Why? Because the bride of Christ stands apart from Babylon through worship. You cling to the testimony about Jesus. It's a result of the Holy Spirit's prophetic work. And maybe even as you get to the sunset years of your life, and you're headed into retirement, and you're enjoying those grandkids, it's easy to make your life all about enjoying that retirement money, enjoying those experiences, and not about pursuing God's glory. You have unique opportunity in retirement, by the way, to spend extra time seeking to glorify God and see the advancement of his work. Yes, in your family, but beyond. Babylon says, just go play golf. Just go do another trip. Right? That's what you should do in your retirement. The bride, the bride is different. The bride clings to the testimony of Jesus, even as we draw our last breath. I don't know how you'll be tempted, but I know you will be. My friend Spurgeon was preaching on this passage a couple hundred years ago in London, and, and he tells this story. He, he tells this story because he recognizes that to live in Babylon is hard as, as the bride of Christ. And we just have to acknowledge that. It is hard, okay? And we lean into that, okay? Yes, it's hard. But listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, I, I heard that when Queen Elizabeth 
once carried this crown when she was young, young Queen Elizabeth, carried the crown. She was a young princess. She found it heavy as she bore it. But someone said to her, you will like it better when you wear it yourself. So you can envision, you know, young Queen Elizabeth kind of holding the crown and all this thing's so heavy, carrying around. And someone there in the household said, yeah, but once you're wearing it, you'll like it better, right? Spurgeon said, so we have to carry a weight for Christ. You feeling that weight today? The temptation, being a little odd in the culture, taking heat from a friend group at school, workplace, family, whatever. Yeah, so we have to carry a weight for Christ. But oh, when the crown is put on our own heads and we are in paradise with him, we shall forget the light afflictions, which were but a moment, as we enter into the enjoyment of the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's hard right now, but it won't always be hard. It's heavy right now, but it won't always be this heavy. We are the bride of Christ today, and that bride stands apart from Babylon. How? Through worship. Brothers and sisters, let's cling to the testimony about Jesus. Would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you so much for just the beauty of this passage the beautiful picture of heaven rejoicing at your judgment, Lord, and heaven rejoicing at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be your bride today. Help us to be preparing ourselves for this wedding feast, to keep an eye on the culture around us, to be aware of how we're being tempted, and Lord, to say no to temptation. We ask that you would help us Enable us to walk in these righteous deeds that are beautiful in your sight. Lord, we confess we can't do that without your Spirit leading us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin and lead us in this righteous living. Lord, I pray for those who may be here who are not a part of your bride. Their allegiance is to Babylon. And maybe they've been lying to themselves, but their their life proves the tale that they don't belong to the bride. They belong to Babylon. Lord, I ask that you would convict them of their sin today and that you would rescue them from their idolatry and bring them home. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself by enlarging the crowd at the wedding feast. Lord, we ask for help because many days it is heavy. And you know our struggles. You know the physical struggles. You know the financial struggles, the emotional toil. Lord, we ask for help to be distinct in this world to glorify you, to cling to the testimony of Jesus. Lord, may the fact that you are the eternal Lamb of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead, may that truth drive us to trust you today and to live distinctly for your glory. Help us to be your bride, beautiful because of our holiness, beautiful because of what you have done for us, and beautiful as we walk in obedience to you. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.